I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our text today is going to be the first two verses by way of introduction to a new series of messages entitled Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church. 1 Timothy is the first of three books in the Bible referred to as the pastoral epistles because they contain instructions to church leaders about church life and ministry and the structure of the church. The other two, of course, are 2 Timothy and Titus. Uh, 1 Timothy is also the first of four epistles, the word epistle meaning letter, uh, written to individuals more so than to uh, specific churches, even though they are in the context of specific churches. By way of introduction, I want to give you some background, uh, and let's think through what the setting was and uh, the purpose of this book, why it was written, to whom it was written, and so on. And I think that'll help us as we introduce this message today. First Timothy was written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy, who was in the city of Ephesus. Ephesus was an important city because it was wealthy, and it was highly influential as a port city of Rome, uh, and it was a major cultural center as the great cities of the day were, and even as they are today. It was renowned for the temple of Artemis, or Diana, which was prized as one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, Ephesus is located in what we know today as modern-day Turkey. And so if you're looking for a region of the world where this happened, that's where it happened. Uh, the Roman Empire actually made it a provincial capital, and it had somewhere around 250,000 people residing in it, which would have made it the third largest in the Roman Empire. After planting the church in Ephesus, Paul put a couple there named Priscilla and Aquila in charge of the church, and later a man named Apollos joined the leadership team there uh, in the local churches in Ephesus. And years later, Paul would return to the city on his third missionary journey, and he would stay there for about three years. That was the longest time that Paul spent in any of the churches that he had a hand in planting. He was eventually forced out of the city because he disrupted the idle trade there, and uh, the gospel was impacting lives in such a way that people were turning from idols, and as a result of that, were not buying these things, and it upset the people who were using that as their way of making money. Over the years, Paul maintained close contact with the leadership in the church at Ephesus. In fact, Paul's farewell speech, really, to the elders and the leaders of the church in Ephesus is one of the most moving passages in all the Bible. You can go back and read about it sometime in Acts chapter 20. He appointed Timothy to serve as the pastor of the church there. And as a result of all these different things that we know about the church at Ephesus, we actually know more about this place than any other church in the Bible. Seven of the New Testament letters are in one way or the other connected to the church at Ephesus. And in the end, sadly, Jesus would point out that they left their first love in Revelation chapter 2. They got away from what they knew to be most important, and they drifted away from the Lord and their devotion to Him. 
Now, Paul first met Timothy in Lystra. It was a city in Asia Minor. Uh, he re- recruited him to travel with him as he continued on his missionary journey. And I think the writing of this epistle uh, dates to a time that followed the book of Acts. Uh, and it was between Paul's imprisonments and uh, to get a little bit of context and dating on that as well, his main missionary journeys took place somewhere around 48 to 56 uh, AD. And it's thought that uh, Paul from 56 to 60 AD made his way through the Roman courts and then ultimately arrived in Rome uh, in prison. And then some think that he was released from that imprisonment and continued his mission work for a time from around 62 to 67 AD, and he traveled freely during that time frame. Uh, He left Timothy in Ephesus, and he left Titus in Crete, and he wrote back to each of them, and then he was imprisoned, and it ultimately led to his execution, of which we don't know the specific details. Now, as to the purpose of 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy offers pastoral advice from an aging apostle, a father in the faith, to a young pastor named Timothy on how to lead the church. He's telling him these are some things that ought to be in place in terms of the leaders and the leadership of the church, as well as the structure and how church life is lived out. And he's writing specifically to this younger man because there were false teachers and there was false teaching. And he wants to combat both and address both. And there are clear contrasts between good and bad spiritual leadership in the church. So this letter provides the most complete treatment in the Bible of a pastor's ministry in the local church. And the distinctives that we find in 1 Timothy are highly practical. Because as the leadership of a church goes, so goes the church. And they're also highly practical because each church has its own personality and strengths and weaknesses. And yet we all also have some things in common. And these things that are in common are these distinctives of a gospel-shaped church that help us know how to live and function as the people of God. There are a number of themes that arise from 1 Timothy. The gospel produces holiness so that belief drives behavior. You can never separate belief from behavior. They always go hand in hand. Orthodoxy and orthopraxy are always hand in hand. The gospel shapes the character of church leaders. And if the church leaders are not where they need to be with Christ, if they're not following after the way of the gospel, then the church is going to be in trouble. The gospel calls for evangelism. When we have received the good news, then we in turn have the responsibility and the opportunity to share the good news. The gospel and how it is received also guides corporate worship. It's good news for a reason, and it guides us in how we are to live for the glory of God. The gospel influences how we relate to one another in the church because we've been reconciled to God, we're reconciled to one another, and we're able to live in a way that honors God. And then the gospel has to be contended for in both its purity and its preservation. There will always be attacks on the gospel. There will always be attacks on the word of God. And we can't ever think that those battles are going to be over and we have to contend for them. And particularly, the leadership of the church 
has to contend for them in such a way that the purity of the gospel is protected and the people are taught in a way that is consistent with what God has given us in his word. So in a healthy church, the pastor teachers in the church uh, accurately and effectively bring the gospel to bear in the everyday lives of the people. So that means that our responsibility is to teach you the truth of the word so that you understand this is not something that we're just doing on Sunday morning as an activity. We're not adding Jesus on uh, to our lives, but he is central to who we are. And the gospel directly impacts your own individual life with God. It impacts uh, your family and your home. It impacts how you carry out your vocation. And it impacts how you live and operate in the world. Because you're a person who has been set apart by Christ and for Christ. And I think the central purpose of this book is to teach how the church should be ordered and how the church should function. Now, if you're looking for some theme verses, I would point you to 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14 and 15. Because in it, Paul says specifically that he has written it so that the people would know how to conduct themselves in God's household. And in that passage in 1 Timothy 3 and verse 14 and 15, he refers to the church as the church of the living God and as the pillar and foundation of the truth. So he's saying something in that. He's saying this is God's household. Now when he speaks of God's household, he's speaking of the dwelling place of God. And he's not talking about a building that is made with hands. He's speaking of the people of God who are saved and who are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And we are God's household collectively as God's people. We belong to him. He is in us. He indwells us by his spirit. And as that, we are also the pillar and the foundation of the truth. That means that we as the church are upholding and, and proclaiming and contending for and very importantly living the truth that we've been given and we're resting our lives on that foundation. So here's what we know. In Jesus, we can have peace with our past. We can have power in the present and we can have a promise for the future. We can be reconciled to God from whatever it is that we've done or experienced in our lives, whatever separated us from God, however dark and deep that was, we can be delivered from it. That's good news for us. We can have power now to live in a way that honors God and is also a blessing to us as his children. And then we have a promise for the future because there's more to come. So let's read these introductory verses in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 1 and 2. Here's what the scripture says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. There are several truths that I want to draw your attention to here in this introduction. The first is that God calls people to serve in obedience. God calls people to serve in obedience. New Testament letters typically follow a similar pattern. In the letters that identify the author, the name of the writer or the author is given, as it is here. 
then there is typically a title for identification, which tells us something about the experience, the background, the uh, authority of the person who is speaking. And then it tells us to whom it is addressed. And then there's a blessing or a prayer of thanksgiving. This is a common pattern. And this is what we find in these first two verses. So he identifies himself as Paul in verse 1. And he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus. Paul, an apostle. What's an apostle? Well, the word apostle appears 81 times in the New Testament. The word apostle uh, refers to a delegate or an ambassador of the gospel. One who is sent on mission. And one who is sent on mission is accountable to the sender and then carries the authority of the sender in order to communicate the message of the sender. And that's what we find with Paul. Now, we learned some specifics about apostles from Acts chapter 1. You remember when they were trying to find a suitable replacement for Judas? According to the scripture, there are some qualifications given specifically for an apostle. An apostle had to be someone who followed Jesus during his earthly ministry uh, from the beginning of uh, his baptism by John the Baptist to his ascension in heaven. An apostle had to be to have seen Jesus after his resurrection, so he saw the risen Lord. And an apostle had to have been appointed by Jesus himself. So wait a minute. How then could Paul be an apostle? How could Paul have ever qualified for this designation? Well, he refers to himself as an apostle out of due time. In 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 8, he says, Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. He was converted to the faith on the road to Damascus. You remember what he's doing on the road to Damascus? He was headed to the synagogues there. And when he got to the synagogues in Damascus, he was looking for Jewish people who believed in the way, people who were believing in Jesus. And he was going to go and find these people who came out of a Jewish background, but they had believed in Jesus. They were following the way. And he was going to persecute them because they had gotten off on another path besides what he thought was right. And Jesus miraculously confronted him. He was blinded by the light. He was brought to a point of repentance. And an apostle by the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus refers to the fact that he was called to serve by an authoritative injunction. This was not a suggestion. This was not Jesus coming to Paul, Saul as it were at the time. It was not Jesus coming to him and saying, hey, would you like to come and follow me and be the missionary to the Gentiles? No, that's not what happened. Jesus appeared to him and with authority, he said, this is what's going to happen. That he had been chosen as the apostle to the Gentiles. And in other letters, he uses the phrase also, by the will of God. So his role as an apostle spoke to his authority in addressing the most important issues in the church and also in refuting anything false that was being taught. And as I've already noted, before he came to faith in Christ, Saul was dedicated to Judaism. He considered Christianity to be a false religion, uh, so he persecuted Christians. And yet God had other plans for him. 
On the road to Damascus, the resurrected Jesus appeared to Paul. And he challenged him on why he was persecuting him. And Paul asked Jesus who he was. And when Jesus replied to him, Paul said, What shall I do, Lord? You understand that when you are confronted with the truth claim about who Jesus is, the only appropriate response is, What shall I do, Lord? That's the only appropriate response. Because this is the God of all glory. This is the one who left heaven and came to earth. And he comes to us by way of the command. And when we are confronted with the truth claim of who he is, and we respond to him in faith, the only right response is, what shall I do, Lord? And Jesus told him to get up and to go into Damascus where he would be told what to do. Now, Paul recounted what his life had been like. In Acts chapter 22 and verse 19 and 20, he said, But I said, Lord, they know that in synagogue after synagogue, I had those who believed in you imprisoned and beaten. And when the blood of your witness, Stephen, was being shed, I stood there giving approval and guarding the clothes of those who killed him. This was what God called him out of. Now, none of us are apostles nor will we be apostles in the proper sense. But all of us who are saved or who will be saved, God has a plan for our lives. God does nothing haphazardly. There's nothing in your life that happens by accident or that happens that God can't use it or work out his purposes through it. And that says to you and it says to me that when God saves us, he's saving us from something But he is also saving us to something. He's rescuing us from something, but then he's delivering us to something. And the purpose for our lives is to glorify him. Is this not at the heart of the gospel? And is this not at the heart of the Great Commission? In fact, the imperative in the Great Commission is to make disciples. It's implied that we will do this as we are going. And as we make disciples, we are seeing people baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. We are teaching them to observe everything that Jesus has commanded. And the promise is that Jesus will always be with us. So the purpose of God, watch this, always carries with it the presence of God. God does not send you into a purpose without also promising you his presence. And all of us as disciples of Jesus have been called and commissioned to follow, serve, and represent Jesus in the world. Because God calls people to serve in obedience. But there's a second truth, and that is God saves people through faith. God saves people through faith. Let's look again in verse 1. He refers to God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope. Verse 2 to Timothy, my true son in the faith. The phrase, God our Savior, is rooted in the Old Testament. And it was used repeatedly to point to the acts of salvation that God brought to bear on behalf of his people. So they saw God as their Savior. Now, oftentimes it was God rescuing them from dire physical circumstances some of which they'd gotten themselves into, but even so, God was their Savior. Sometimes it was more spiritually focused, but it always had the point of directing the people to God 
so that they would know that no matter what the circumstance was, whether it was physical or spiritual, whatever the situation was, God was their Savior. Time again and again, we find that in the Scripture. Isaiah 45 and verse 22 says, And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. And he says, For I am God and there is no other. In Isaiah, the people are pictured as being in captivity. And the question that might have arisen when the people got themselves into captivity was, has God been discredited? Was God not able to prevent them from being put into captivity? Was God somehow not strong enough to deliver them when they needed it? And the obvious answers to all of those questions is absolutely not. The idols that the people were prone to follow after were useless. These idols could not help them. There was nothing that could deliver them. There was no one who could rescue them other than God. And God is the only one to whom the peoples of the world can look. He's the Savior of Israel because he's the Savior of the world. And in the time of Paul, wicked Nero had actually claimed the title Savior of the world for himself. Can you imagine a man describing himself as the Savior of the world? And Paul makes it absolutely clear, only God can save. Here's what it says in Titus 1 and verse 3. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command, listen to this, of God our Savior. Now let's make another connection here. When Jesus is called the Savior in the New Testament, the truth is communicating something to us about Jesus. And what it is communicating to us about Jesus is that Jesus is God. So while the Old Testament was presenting to us that God is our Savior, He's the only Savior, when Jesus Christ is presented as Savior, His name meaning Yahweh saves, that was a direct reference to the fact that Jesus is God. Now, why would that matter? Because only God has the power to save. A mere man could not have accomplished our salvation. It was only in the fact that God left heaven and came to earth in Jesus Christ that the eternal Son of God was willing to enter in to this mess that we exist in, into this fallen world, and by the eternal plan of God, offer himself up as the once and for all sacrifice for our sins so that the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was offered on our behalf and this was God, 100% God and 100% man who was doing this for us. So when he refers to God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, he's making it clear that only God can save us and the way that he's done it is through his son Jesus. You remember the angel explained to Joseph that the reason for naming the child in Mary's womb Jesus was because he would save his people from their sins. So let me say it to you another way. There is no life apart from God. There is no salvation apart from God. And the message of the gospel is that apart from Jesus Christ, we are lost. We are dead in our trespasses and our sin. 
we are separated from a holy God. We are under the judgment of God. In fact, we are on our way to a sinner's hell, and we deserve it. We are under the judgment of God, eternally so. But God, God sent his one and only son to live and to die and to now live again. And all who repent of their sins and believe in Jesus can be saved. That's why we call it good news. It's good news because Christ Jesus is our hope. That's what he says here. And this hope that we have in Jesus means a certain hope. It means a fully confident expectation. And I think too often when we use the word hope in this life, we use it on shaky ground. I hope I don't get sick. I hope my kids turn out. I hope that this is a good year. I hope that the economy gets better. On and on we could go. We're saying these things. I, I hope this is going to happen. But there's this, there's this thought when we say it, and it certainly comes across this way, we're not real sure that what we're saying is actually going to happen. But when we say Christ Jesus, our hope, we are meaning a certain hope. We're saying that when we hope in Jesus, it is a fully confident expectation. It's our eternal hope. He is. And as humans, we seek after hope all the time. I, I would say it's intrinsic to who we are. Neuroscientists have argued that hope is so essential to our survival that it's actually hardwired into our brains, if you can imagine that. That God made us in that way is what I would say. And they argue that it can be the difference between a healthy life and a life that is lived in despair. They've done studies and they've shown that uh, college students who have hope actually get higher GPAs and are more likely to graduate in the finish. Um, hopeful athletes perform better on the field. They cope better with injuries. They have greater mental adjustment when the situation changes. In one study of older folks, that study showed that people who felt hopeless in their older years were more than twice as likely to die early than people who are hopeful. So it's pretty clear that hope is a powerful catalytic uh, in our lives. And hope is not just an emotion. It is an essential life tool. And in the Christian life, we are filled with a certain hope. We're filled with the hope of eternal life. That's why Paul writes that we sorrow, but not as those who have no hope. How, how could it be that in, in a moment when we've lost someone who is very near to us, very close to us, maybe that we've been around our entire lives and they pass from this life to the next, that we can stand at a graveside and we can grieve, but we don't grieve as people who have no hope. We grieve with a certain hope. We grieve with the truth that Jesus is our hope. And we have that hope of the assurance of salvation. I mean, I mean, that's the embodiment of Christianity, that this is not all there is. And we look around us in life, even when we're in the most difficult of circumstances, we can say to ourselves and we can mean it. Hey, this is not all there is. This is not the end of the story. It's just the beginning. Because God's the God of renewal. And God's the God of eternity. Colossians presents a picture of a living and active hope that I think ought to be present in every follower of Jesus. In Colossians 1 and verse 27, it says, God wanted to make known among the Gentiles the glorious wealth of this mystery. Listen to this. Which is Christ in you the hope of glory. 
So at salvation, Jesus comes to dwell in your heart through the Holy Spirit. And your hope in this life and in the life to come is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now notice here in the first part of verse 2, he refers to Timothy as my true son in the faith. Uh, The first reference to Timothy is in Acts chapter 16. It's near the beginning of Paul's second missionary journey. Lystra is is mentioned twice, um, suggesting that that was Timothy's hometown. He accompanied Paul on those second and third missionary journeys. His father was Greek, and his mother, uh, Eunice, and his grandmother, Lois, were Jewish. He was raised in the faith, and Paul uses a very interesting word here, when he calls him his true son in the faith. True refers to the genuineness or the sincerity of Timothy's faith. And I want you to think just for a moment, if someone were to have to come up with an adjective to describe your faith, they they would have to come up with some type of descriptor, in other words, that would tell something about your faith. What would that adjective or descriptor be? Would it be true and genuine and sincere? Or would it be something else? Or would they have to really think about it to evaluate what it was? For us, there could be no better descriptor than the fact that we are true and genuine and sincere as this young man was. And to the church at Corinth, uh, Paul wrote, I'm sending you Timothy, my son whom I love. To the Philippians, he wrote, as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. This was a trusted, true, faithful servant of Jesus. How was that true in his life? Because he had been saved through faith. His life was changed. He he wasn't just going through the motions. He, He wasn't just there for something to do. He was there by the call of God to serve obediently because he was a man who had been saved by faith. And I want to tell you, as believers in Jesus, we ought never get to the place where we get over the fact that we have been saved through faith. We ought never be in the place where the faith becomes mundane or we're going through the motions or we're just getting by or somehow we're just giving God what's left over. That should never be the character of our lives. Jesus should be central to who you are. And your faith ought to be the most important thing in your life because everything else in your life is directed by your relationship with God and by the truth of his word and the power of his spirit. That's what God will do. He'll save you through faith. And I say to you today, if you've never been saved through faith, today would be a good day. It'd be a good day to meet the Lord, for your life to be forever changed. This might be your moment where God is calling you And he's calling you because he's got a purpose for you. To save your soul and to use you in his kingdom. And then the third and final truth is that God gives grace, mercy, and peace to share with others. You see this in the second part of verse 2. Grace is unmerited favor. The ancient Greeks used the word grace when a strong person helped a weak person. When a person who was in authority helped someone who was dependent and in need. 
The idea was that the person could not succeed on their own. That's how they would have described the word to begin with. For us, in the biblical context, grace means unmerited favor. It means that God pours out his favor on the undeserving. That though we were born into sin, we are guilty of breaking God's law, we were enemies of God, we were deserving of death, we had no way to save ourselves, God extends forgiveness for the guilty. God provides saving grace and he also provides sustaining grace. And this is very important to understand because sometimes we think about grace being something that we receive only as a gift when we come to Christ. And then somehow we get this idea that we have to work it out from there on our own. Yes, we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. But the idea is not that we're doing it in our own strength. The idea is that we're doing it in God's strength. So as I often say, the gospel is not about try harder and do better. The gospel is not about making your way on your own. That's not the message. The message is that God has intervened on your behalf. He has extended to you unmerited favor through the blood of Jesus Christ on the cross that it is about God's forgiveness for the guilty and that grace that he saved you with is the same grace that he sustains you with. And I'm convinced that one of the reasons that sometimes we get so tired and so weary in serving God is because we're trying to do it on our own. We're trying to do it in the flesh. We're not resting in the grace and the mercy and the peace that God has given us. And we've been saved by grace through faith, but we've been saved to carry out those good works that God created us for. And then mercy is God's loving kindness. It is God's special care for a person in need. It is kindness to the helpless. And in mercy, what God does is he withholds the just penalty for our sin because Jesus took our punishment upon himself. So this is not God turning a blind eye to sin. This is not God giving the wink-wink to sin. Oh, it's no big deal. That's not what God's doing. Oh, mercy is costly. Mercy is so costly that it costs God his one and only son. That God was willing to lay our sin on him. That Jesus Christ was willing to bear the wrath of God for us. So that God could show kindness to the helpless. And mercy comes to us because Jesus took our place. I read a story, it's a remarkable story of mercy, a true story, about a young man by the name of Isaac Garcia. He was only 18 years old when he was lured to a particular place in Colorado to where he was supposed to meet some other young men, and they reportedly were going to settle some type of dispute that had arisen between them. When he got there, he was murdered. Murdered in cold blood. Cameron Long was found guilty of his murder. Subsequently sentenced to 36 years in prison after pleading guilty. Isaac's father, Jose, turned to his faith to deal with what was an unbearable experience in his family. And here's what he said. He said, I'm a Christian and I believe God wants us to forgive In fact, he expects us to forgive. He said, forgive others the way that you want to be forgiven. 
Church, that is a demonstration of mercy. That a father could look upon a young man who had murdered his son in cold blood and say with sincerity, somehow by the power of God, I forgive you. I extend grace and mercy to you. Now, you don't have to be a great theologian to see where this is going or to know what I'm about to say. But when we look at what God has done, even though it was our sin, we were the guilty ones. In the courtroom of God, each of us was Cameron Long. We stood guilty. And God was willing to give his son so that we could be forgiven and have eternal life. That is grace and mercy. And how could we, as a people who have been given so much, not freely share it? How could we not, from the depths of our soul, want to be a people who extend grace and mercy to other people because it has been given to us so greatly? It is grace upon grace, far more than we could ever have asked or imagined. And yet God freely gives it. And then he mentions peace, tranquility, harmony, security. Where does peace come from? It comes from grace and mercy and being reconciled to God. Through Jesus, we have the peace of God. We have peace with God because we've been reconciled to him. And we have a peace that surpasses all understanding that will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Now, sometimes we think of peace, at least I have a tendency to at times, to think about peace as an absence of conflict. And I think, well... The water has to be tranquil, and it can't be very stormy around me, or otherwise I don't have peace. There's a story that illustrates this in a different way. It's a story of a king who announced a painting contest. He was building a new palace, and he wanted the main entrance hall to be decorated with a large work of art. The king envisioned his kingdom as a peaceful land, so whoever's painting best symbolized peace was going to win a large cash prize. Over the next few months, hundreds of paintings arrived at the palace in this contest. The king decided on the top two. But before announcing the winner, he hung both paintings in the palace for public viewing. The first painting was of a majestic lake. It was so tranquil and still that the lush hills behind it were perfectly mirrored in the reflection of the lake. The sky was a brilliant hue with soft, puffy clouds floating above it. There were wildflowers bursting with color outlining the lake. And there was a family of deer calmly grazing in a far meadow. Everybody who saw this painting felt calm and happiness. But now there's a second painting. The second painting portrayed a tall mountain cliff, rugged and strong. A few small trees grew out of the cracks of the face of the cliff with gnarled roots clinging for life. A foamy waterfall angrily crashed down the cliff and into the rocky land below. Above it were dark, ominous clouds that loomed, and in the distance there was lightning flashing. Halfway up the cliff grew a small bush, and in its branches a bird sat in the nest 
carefully warming the nest because her eggs were in it. Several weeks passed and the king declared that the second painting was the winner. People were confused and upset, so they asked the king to explain his decision. And here's what he said. Peace is not the absence of conflict. Those who experience peace have love in their hearts even when turmoil surrounds them. What are you relying on for your peace? Is it the conditions around you? Or is it the certainty of who God is in your life through his grace and his mercy? God's given this to us so that we might share it with others. And I say in closing, followers of Jesus and churches are strongest when they follow God's purpose and plan for them. That's what we want to do and that's who we want to be as a church. We want to be on God's agenda. We want to be on God's timetable. We want to be in the middle of God's plan. We want to be people who are faith-focused. And I think 1 Timothy serves as a manual of church leadership and structure, but it is chock full of teaching about the gospel and about how Christians are to live. We will not be a people who simply go through the motions. That's not who we're going to be as a church. We're going to be a people who answer the call of God by grace through faith to know him and to serve him. And to share these blessings with others. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. Gracious Father, as we bow our heads before you in these moments, we're so thankful for your word. When we look at a man like Saul, who was spiritually arrested on the road to Damascus and eternally transformed, we're reminded of where we came from. That while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The sinless one died for the sinners. And for that we say thank you. Help us, God, to be the church that we need to be. Not a church going through the motions, but a church that is living as grace upon grace. That our lives will be so full of grace that it will be evident in everything that we do. The most mundane things that we do this week, may we be reminded that we are filled with your grace, wowed by your mercy, and overcome by your peace. I pray, Father, if there are any of the sound of my voice that are here in this building today or following along with us online or maybe listening to this message later on, who have not yet met Jesus as their Savior, that they'd not wait, but they'd turn to him and believe. God, we give this time of conclusion and response over to you, and we ask that you work in it as you see fit. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.